It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am really excited about my guest today. He's got a new book coming out tomorrow, the 11th, the 11th October. Yes. October. His name is Nelson DeMille. I'm sure many of you have read his books. He's been mm. writing for many years. He's got about two dozen books out, many of which have become New York Times bestsellers. You may have seen the General's Daughter film, which is based on one of his best-selling books. He's best known for his John Corey series, including Plum Island, Lion's Game, and his newest, The Maze. So before we get into The Maze, hmm. no pun intended, I have a question for you, Nelson. First of all, welcome. Thank you. You served in Vietnam. You were a U.S. Army lieutenant. You served in Vietnam for a couple of years. Right. And... I'm curious to know, your very first novel, your first big novel, was called By the Rivers of Babylon, published in 78. What made you pick up the pen and start writing? Well, that's a good question. I think, really, it had to do with the war experience. I mean, my first novel, which was unpublished, was actually a Vietnam War novel. You know, I grew up in a generation when people like James Jones and, you know, so many others, World War II, veterans were writing about World War II, Norman Mailer being another one, Naked and the Dead. And, you know, that was my previous generation, my father's generation. So, you know, I was educated. I was an officer. I saw combat. I came home. I'm going to write the great American war novel. We all are, right? And uh, the publishers were not interested. I mean, I knew people in the business pre-war, and they were not interested in Vietnam. Vietnam was still going on. It was you know, a very divisive war. Nobody was writing about Vietnam, and certainly not in uh, fiction form. So the experience of World War II with all those novels and nonfiction wasn't repeated for Vietnam. So, you know, but it got me into the writing process. That's mm. the thing. And I, you know, I figured out how to sit down and write. And it was like the long-term paper from college. When I tied up with somebody who liked my writing, a man named Bernie Geis, I wrote By the Rivers of Babylon for him. And it was my first hardcover novel. And it was a book of the month club, hmm. a Reader's Digest condensed book, and everything offered. It's like every writer's dream come true. Yeah. So I said, you know, well, this is easy. I can, I think I can do this for a living. <laughs> and it's uh, still in print. I and it's still add. in print. Uh, 1978. I don't know how many years that is, but it's a lot of years. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So when you write, and by the way, I have to tell you, say the first novel of yours that I read hmm. was The Gold Coast, which is hmm. a laugh out loud funny, a very Long Island novel. Plum Island, same thing. Not so funny, maybe, in the yeah. same kind of way. Yeah. And so you choose books. And I want to get into the maze in a second. But you choose really meaty subjects to get into. How much research do you have to do? Say, you know, Lion's Game, for instance. You really had to research what's happening in Libya, what's happening yeah. in the state of affairs and in law enforcement agencies, federal law enforcement agencies here, yeah. et cetera. How do you get into it? How much do you embed yeah, there's a lot of research, and you know, I try to do the embedding when I can, and uh, really good relationships with the FBI, and not so much with the CIA, but excellent, excellent relationships with the NYPD and 
their joint terrorist task force. They like my books. It's, it's easy when you're a best-selling novelist to, you know, give a call and talk to the right people, then they invite you down to one police plaza or 26 federal plazas. So, you know, it's not easy research, but the access is easy because, you know, I'm kind of pro-cop, pro-FBI, CIA, maybe not. But, you know, they're, people are willing to talk, especially if they're retired. And as the years went by, I knew a lot more retired NYPD and retired FBI who will tell you things they didn't tell you when, mm-hmm. when they were active duty. So that's the research end of it. And, you know, the other thing is the subject matter with, with a novel with such a lag time. It takes a year to write it, 14 months to write it. Uh, it goes through the editing process. The publisher may hold it for three months, four months, five months. So what was hot at the moment you know, which would have been a great magazine article in a weekly magazine, is not necessarily hot a year and a half or two years later. So you got to kind of think ahead, like, right. you know, what is this going to be about? And is this going to be relevant almost two years from now? And the hardcover, then you got a paperback a year afterward, mm-hmm. that type of thing. And I, when I wrote Chomsky, it was a Cold War novel. When that book was published, the Cold War was over. Hmm. Just like that, 1989, a wall came down. Nobody expected that. And uh, I had this great Cold War novel following in a long line of you know, of great Cold War novels. That was a thing back in the 70s and 80s, these yeah. Cold War novels. The book still sold well. It's still selling well today. It's still in print. The story is good. But, you know, the relevance is now it's more like history. Uh, it's actually being taught in colleges yeah. as, a, as a look back to the Cold War. And probably uh, inspired Red Sparrow, I'm imagining. Which is, yeah, which I is may have. Similar uh, kind of thing, but on the Soviet side. Yeah, and also there was a TV show called The Americans about Soviets who come here and pose as Americans. And that's what my book, The Charm School, was about. You know, so, you know, the story's got to be good. you got to realize the story. The story has got to outlast the current events that it's being written about. Yes. Uh, it's got to be a timeless story and the other timely at the same time. That's where you get the editor's interest in a timely story. They, they want to talk about the Cold War. They want to talk whatever, whatever the subject is, terrorism. That's what they want to see at the moment. But then the book has got to really outlive that. Well, speaking mm-hmm. of timely, I read mm-hmm. The Lion's Game. I actually read it recently. It was mm-hmm. published in the year 2000. Mm-hmm. And you were very prescient came out in the year 2000, obviously 9-11, yeah. 2001. There's this scene where Assad, the lion, is right. in a taxi, and mm. he sort of looks over wistfully to the Twin Towers, thinking, hmm, there's some possibility there. Yeah, right. Uh, are you psychic? That was before the, uh, before 9-11, obviously. Obviously, yeah, but it was so prescient. Uh, no, and I there mean, were other moments in that book that really hearkened. Well, again, this goes back to Joint Terrorist Task Force, NYPD, and a little bit of, you know, at that point when I was writing that book, the Twin Towers, one of the towers already had a bomb planted in the... Right, in 93. Uh, yeah, 93. And didn't do much damage, but it was, you know, a precursor of what was to come. So, you know, when I was researching the book, I asked somebody on a Joint Terrorist Task Force about that, and they said, oh, the tower's going to be attacked again. I'll never forget what he said. He said it's going to be a, like a private jet, like a Learjet, full of fuel, two of them, and they're going to both do suicide missions into the towers and take them down. Well, they weren't far off, and this was years before it actually happened. They knew it was going to be an aerial attack. They knew it was going to be suicide pilots, and they, they were talking private jets. You have to say Learjet. As it turned out, it was two commercial airliners that were hijacked, three actually. But, you know, they stayed with me. So when I was writing the book, I just kind of included it as a side thing. Had I, you know, had I thought about it more, I would have maybe made more of a point of it in the book. 
But that's where that came from. It came from actual mm. intel that was passed on to me. So what did you think on the real 9-11? 9-11, yeah. I said, you must oh. have seen that. Right. I said, oh, I've heard this before. But, you know, I mean, I, the original news reports in the very early morning of 9-11, one of the reporters, uh, one of the networks said it was a small plane. Because it looks small. Compared, I remember that. Right. It looks yeah. small compared to the, the tower. I said it was a small plane that crashed into the building, and I didn't know if it was, you know, an accident or whatever. And I said to myself, no, I know I know exactly what happened. Mm. I thought it was this Learjet they were talking about, and it was not an accident. Mm. That I knew right from the beginning. And then, of course, the second one hit, and it turned out to be commercial airliners. Yeah. So it was kind of chilling to think yeah. that this information was available yeah. years before it actually happened. Chilling, indeed. But like all in, Intel, that's the product. You pass the product on to the executive branch, somebody's got to do something with the product, but nobody did anything with this intel. They just filed, kind of filed it away. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think we learned a lot since then, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was the second John Corey book? It Long was, Island actually, was first. yeah. That was yeah. the second. So your right. latest is called The Maze. It takes place in Suffolk County on Long Island, and mm. it's not really based on the Gilgo murders, but I think that mm. might have been your inspiration. Just tell us about that connection. Yeah, it was actually inspired by the Gilgo Beach murders. You know, sometimes you fictionalize real events, and novelists do that. You could, you could fictionalize it very closely, like all the novels that came out about the Kennedy assassination, where you can kind of go one-off. And I decided the Gilgo Beach murders are so complex that it was just an inspiration for the maze, but not a blueprint for it. Right. My character, John Corey, this is his eighth novel, in some ways, this is a sequel to the first John Corey novel, which was Plum Island. Mm. And because John Corey is now back where he started at Plum Island, he's resting at his uncle's seaside mansion. And somebody, an old lover, Beth Penrose, comes to visit him and asks him if he would do her a favor sort of thing. I won't give the whole thing away, but it kind of picks up. It kind of comes full circle. And everybody who read, the, uh, read Plum Island, I think, will enjoy the maze. It's a good setting, too. It's the North Fork of Suffolk County, the wine country, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. and it was really kind of a rich setting the first time when, when I did Plum Island, and everybody sort of enjoyed the, uh, you know, the ambiance of that <laughs> that area. And it's also, again, just kind of John Corey wrapping it up. Maybe John Corey's last case, I don't know. Yeah. Every time I say I've done with John Corey, I get talked into another one. You know, Conan Doyle hated Sherlock Holmes. He didn't want to do another Sherlock Holmes. And he, but there's he, such a demand. And that's the same right, with John demand, Corey. Right. People love John Corey like he's a real person. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's got real fans, super right. fans. Yeah, that's it. So, you know, I'm writing for my readers. I'm not writing for me. And, you know, the, the famous Conan Doyle, he killed Sherlock Holmes by uh, having him pushed over the Reichenbach Falls in Switzerland. But then the fans went, you know, fans became really irate and he had to bring him back. So I, you know, I don't want to kill John Corey, but he's still alive and well and maybe maybe ready for another adventure. And he's got quite a resume. Former NYPD, right. former Joint Terrorism Task Force under right. a different name. Right. Form, it's sort of a Secret Service kind of job. Right. Yeah, and his last job was a diplomatic surveillance group, yeah. which is an actual real outfit. And uh, yeah, and I uh, in my book say the Joint Terrorist Task Force, I read into the Anti-Terrorist Task Force. Just, just to fictionalize a little bit so I have some uh, leeway with it. Uh, you know, when you do the research, you want to get it right, but you can't always get it all right. I mean, you have to be a master of all trades. You talk to police, you talk to FBI, you talk to airline pilots and 
my novels are kind of rich in research, maybe too much sometimes. But if I go someplace, like when I wrote The Cuban Affair, I went to Cuba. I didn't really want to go to Cuba. I'd rather have been in the Bahamas, but you go to <laughs> Cuba. And, and, you know, every book I've written, almost every book I've written, I've gone where the book takes place, Vietnam, whatever. Mm. Yeah, sometimes it's fun. It's always interesting. Uh, Moscow, Leningrad for the Charm School. And, you know, you got to be, you can't be, too many novelists today are armchair writers. They have the internet. They don't have to go anyplace. Mm. They want to see what the Rocio Hotel looks like in Moscow. They pull it up on the internet in three seconds. Mm. Whereas I actually went there in 1987. And you can pick up yeah. the smells. Right, exactly. And the other nuances yeah. oh, that yeah. you miss. Yeah, absolutely. And while you may not use it all, mm. you'll find just the right little seasoning from that that yeah. you wouldn't have had otherwise. Absolutely. Now, John Corey is not what you would call a politically correct guy. He's no. very sarcastic. <laughs> He's very funny. Do you find, you know, as time goes on and the culture changes, pressure to change him? Or does he feel the pressure himself as a character? <laughs> well, we, we both know the answer to that, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I asked. Which is why you asked. Uh, this is the first time I actually felt a lot of pressure from editorial staff. And hmm. John Corey was, you know, politically incorrect. Uh, certainly not racist. Maybe he's a decent person. Yeah, and and the women love him, and you know he's a little bit sexist sometimes, but he always gets called out for it, you know. And no, there was a lot of editorial blowback on this one. They wanted Mm -hmm. me to soften some things, and you know, like because it's about the Gilgo Beach murders, and I call them the Fire Island murders. I use the word prostitute a lot, which I thought was a perfectly acceptable word. I'm sure you would think the same thing. Prostitute is the the good word when. I was right. younger and grew up in a tough neighborhood. It was hookers and, you know, the whole, right. but, but no, they come back to me and they say, can you use the word sex worker more and take away and, and get rid of some of the prostitute? Say, Excuse me. I mean, I grew up, prostitute was the nice word. That's why I used it. That was the polite word. That was the polite word. And now they're saying, no, it's sex worker. I said, it sounds pretty tawdry. It sounds worse. It than, sounds worse. And right. also, that's not a word that your character would use. Exactly. You have to be true right, to the character. Right, right, right. So, you know, I'm thinking, all right, apparently I have not seen the recent memos on the politically correct words, and, but I have a I have a 40-year-old son who's my co-author on a lot of books. Sometimes I call him, and I say, Alex, uh, you know, well, I actually send him chapters, too, and I said, you know, uh, help me out here. If, I'm, if I somehow cross some imaginary barrier that's going you know, to honk off somebody, not that I really care. No, I mean, I retained about 90% of what I wanted in that book in terms mm-hmm. of John Corey's political incorrectness. Mm-hmm. I backed off a few times. I, you know, I took a deep breath. I said, "Okay, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not self-censoring, and they're not going to censor me." But I think I can compromise here and there. But it was a, a first of all, drawn-out process. You finished the book. You spent 14 months on it. You don't really need more editorial input that has nothing to do with the actual story or the or the grammar, punctuation, and spelling. Now we're doing a political you know, review of the book, and I found it a little bit offensive. Yeah, I can uh, see that. Yeah. Because there is the artistic voice, and right. you want to be true to that as much as possible. Right. And also, you you know, I mean, you have many best-selling books. You're obviously, not to blow smoke, you're obviously doing mm-hmm. something right, and you know what right. you're doing. Yeah, I debut at number one. I reminded them of that. Yeah. <laughs> I, the I debut at number one, you know, like I know what I'm doing. And then they got confused themselves, some of the editorial people, because they're into the PC, they're into woke, but they're a little confused. And 
some of my bad guy characters were saying things that were really, you know, a little bit sexist. And then one racist word, I used a racist word for a Chinese person, but it came out of the mouth of a bad guy who was supposed to be bad. And it shows how bad he is. Right, exactly. But they wanted that word out. They wouldn't compromise on that word. From a bad uh, guy, that's interesting. From a bad guy. And I said, you understand you're whitewashing the bad guy? Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, this is like, I think they're just kind of feeling around and they're not quite sure themselves. They haven't checked the recent memos from yeah, the woke committee. Yeah, there's probably fear, and they're they're yeah. they're probably afraid of blowback, and they're yeah. probably afraid it'll hurt sales. It never hurts sales, believe Actually, me. Actually, it helps sales. <laughs> it helps sales. There's no such thing as bad publicity. Well, they are they are afraid of blowback. They have young yeah. young editorial staff who yeah. get their hands on the advanced reading copies of the manuscripts and sign petitions and that type of thing. So yeah. That's what's going on in publishing right now. It's not just me. It's a lot of Yeah, that's people. interesting. Right. Yeah, that's, that's something to watch, yeah. I think, when you start censoring. Right. I'm always interested in the whole craft of writing. Your books, because they are suspenseful, because they are thrillers, have to have have to be plotted. It's not like you can just sit there like Proust and ruminate <laughs> about the Madeleine or whatever. Um, do you find, when you've plotted something out, if that's how you do it, that your character or your story all of a sudden takes a left turn and you've got to follow it there instead yeah. of the way you had planned it. Well, yeah, you know, and I, my plots are kind of thin to begin with. I, you know, I, I work on the plot as I go along. You know, I always say bad writers write great plots. You know, the 20-page outline they give to the publisher sounds like the plot, the greatest plot there ever was. But they often, the better the outline, the worse the book usually. Oh, that's so funny. Because a lot of these writers really can't write. They can't write. They can't bring it out in prose. And, yeah. But they know how to tell, you know, and their mind is great stories. So uh, I, British books, British, and then I read a lot of British novels. They're light on plot and heavy on characterization. Americans are different. We were heavy on plot and light on characterization. But, you know, when I learned, you know, when I learned the trade of writing, I remember it's, Somebody said, people want to know about people. Mm-hmm. It's really all about characters. Mm-hmm. And character is destiny. It's primal. Is, uh, right. It is primal. This is, this is why we're reading these books. Yeah. So I start with my characters, and then I go to my ambiance where I'm going to set this book. And, of course, knowing what the book is about, like if it's, about, it's a Cold War thriller, I'm going to set it in Moscow, that I know. I've got to create my characters, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, what are they doing there? Well, that, that's where the plot comes in. And I'm not always sure. I readjusting the plot as I go along. The plot to me is a little bit more difficult. Uh, the writing comes easy to me. Characterizations come easy to me. The plot is where sometimes I'm I'm challenged because plots are really storylines that can go off in any direction. Mm. They've got to pick the right direction. And as you said, sometimes your character, uh, whether it be your main character or sub-character, has a flaw. You know, he's a character flaw. And he's going to do something that's going to put this plot off in another direction. And you do it if it's interesting. Uh, not You don't just do it to do it. Um, there's a lot of decisions. It's really, you know, it's almost binary. I mean, you're making a decision every time you pick a word. When you write a sentence, you write a paragraph, you write a chapter, Is you're making choices every second, every second. Mm-hmm. Of what he's going to say and which she's going to say back to him and that type of thing. Even after 24 books, I still find it a challenge, which is good. A lot of people don't find challenges anymore in their writing or their or their work in general. Uh, I still find it challenging, and I still find it interesting. It's, you know, it's laborious. You, you're sitting in a room by yourself all day telling yourself stories, and you're the only one there. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the, the expression in the business is I hate writing, but I love having written. Mm-hmm. And every time I finish a chapter, or especially when I finish the book, it's like, you know, it's like I just got out of prison. It was like mm-hmm. the greatest, you know. You're liberated. Like, totally liberated, totally unemployed. Yeah. I, uh, people say, what are you doing today? I'm unemployed. Yeah. You know, I, I wrote the two magic words at the end, sent it to the publisher. I don't have to think about it again for another month before I hear back from them. But, you know. Do you read reviews of your books? I do, yeah. I'm pretty thick-skinned, too. You are. So how do you handle if someone pans it? It depends if it's, you know, sometimes there's inaccuracies in the review. Like the review yeah. really revolves around uh, an inaccuracy. Uh, somebody doesn't understand something. Somebody's review is reading it too fast. I will write to the editor um, and saying your reviewer obviously didn't read the book. And I'll point it out. But other than that... You know, other than trying to get the reviewer in trouble, which is what I try to do, mm-hmm. I don't look for <laughs> corrections or anything. And, you know, it's just fine. Yeah. You get thick skin. Most of my reviews are good anyway. You know, I wonder. I'm very intrigued by your service in Vietnam. And, you know, that's a generation that when you came back, you were not celebrated. Right. And the fact that people weren't interested in a Vietnam novel is so interesting to me. That hadn't occurred to me because mm. there are so many amazing Vietnam novels now. I mean, no, the first yeah. one that pops into my head is The Things They Carried. Right. Would you ever consider going back and drawing on your time there and creating mm. fiction about that? Well, you know, I did in Upcountry, yeah. which I'm going to give you. And, okay, because yeah. that's one I haven't read. Right, yeah. that's Maybe it's one of my best novels. I mean, I think so, personally. I went back to Vietnam in 97 with two other guys who had served at the same time I was there. One of them was a childhood friend. The other one was somebody I'd met uh, more recently. And one fellow was a combat medic. And my childhood friend, Dan Barbiero, was a, a Marine combat. I think he was combo, but he was also combat. But we were maybe 20 kilometers apart during the war. And mm. I, uh, I went up to his base camp to try to see him one day, but he was, he was out in the field, and I just wrote an article about uh, trying to meet my childhood buddy in Vietnam. Mm. Where so, was the article? Uh, it's in a, just a local, uh, an army magazine called mm. The Bugle. It's a, it's a local, I'm gonna, I'll send it to you. But, you know, yeah, so I went back, and uh, uh, a travel magazine asked me to go back and write a travel article about Vietnam. They wanted a combat vet who's now going to go back after 30 years, it was actually 29 years. Mm. And I said, sure, you know, and I, but in the back of my mind, I said, you know, uh, I can do the travel article, 10,000 words, but I can also do a novel on this. Uh, so while I was there, I was kind of plotting the novel. And, mm. uh, you know, I think it was, uh, here's a case where I had actually a good plot. Somebody, and they want to make it a travelogue. A guy goes back after 29 years and gets involved with, a, you know, an action adventure, mystery kind of thing. And the book sold very well. And it mm. sold the movie rights right away and hasn't been made into a movie. It was the character of Paul Brenner, who was oh, the yes. main character in The General's Daughter. Right. It was we played by Paul. Travolta. Right. Travolta. Travolta, you know, and I met him on the set a few times. He loved the character. He took lines out of my book, dialogue, that wasn't in the screenplay, and he substituted I was very flattered. Well, that must have been satisfying. Yeah, it, was, it was really good. Yeah. He was really into the book. Yeah, very, very guy, smart guy. Had to be a smart guy. He was just listening to <laughs> authors rather than screenwriters. <laughs> and, uh, but he was supposed to play the uh, role of Paul Brenner again in Upcountry. But, you know, fell through for one reason or another. And, mm. uh, but we're still hoping we get the sequel yeah, made. Know. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So you were born in New York City. You were raised in Nassau County in Elmont. Right. You went to. Elmont Memorial High School. Correct. Go Spartans. You played right. football. You ran track. 
But, you know, people think of, you know, Nassau County, Long Island as all plush and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily the case, right? Mm-hmm. Tell us, just tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. your childhood. Oh, my gosh. I'm hardly ever asked. <laughs> I think I, you know, last time I talked about my childhood, was, there was shrink, I think. But, uh, <laughs> well, it was a good childhood, though. I mean, it was a good childhood. My father was Canadian. Mm-hmm. And I know you were born in Canada. That's right. In fact, my father was born probably 30 miles or Maybe we would say uh, 40, yeah, St. Catharines and Hagersville. Where I was born. 40 kilometers, as they say now, from where you were born. He came to America uh, before the Second World War. Came because of economic things. And he, you know, we, you know, he worked his way. And then, you know, through several jobs during the Depression, World War II started. He joined the Navy, American Navy. And so I didn't really know him when I was born. I was born in 43 mm. and during the war, and he was away. Mm. I didn't see him for almost three years. Wow. It's hard to you know, even comprehend that today, that you know, so many millions of men were away, and yeah. you know, they, won't, they had children at home. But we lived in uh, Queens, in Jamaica, Queens, not a very nice area, still not a nice area. Still hasn't been boutiqueified. It's still a tough area in Jamaica. And Boutique-ified, uh, I like that word. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that anything. It might be more dangerous than when I grew up there. But we moved to Elmont early as my father was a builder. He got into building after the Second World War. And they were building what they called then a homes fit for heroes. Mm-hmm. These were for the returning veterans. These were modest houses. They, got a, they were building them on Long Island. My father was involved with a project of about 1,500 houses. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Levittown. The Levitts were building 15,000 houses mm-hmm. further out on Long Island. And so that's where I really grew up. At five years old, we moved out of Queens, which is part of New York City, uh, into the new suburbia. Yeah. And that's it was a 50s childhood, you know, classic right? Story. A classic American story from that era. And it was a nice childhood. I mean, I can't, thinking back, can I remember anything bad? Well, probably, but it was, you know, it's almost, it's almost. You know, at a central casting, everybody was from the 50s. Mm-hmm. It really was the 50s. Mm-hmm. This wasn't a movie. It was the 50s. And everybody had their one car and their lawnmower. And it was a very good childhood. And mm-hmm. uh, Elmo was a little bit of a rough neighborhood. There was mm-hmm. a lot of people coming from Brooklyn and Queens who they were coming from bad neighborhoods, but fathers who and mothers who had been successful enough to buy a piece of the American dream in the new suburbia. Not everybody fit, you know, together uh, maybe well, but in terms of maybe socioeconomic, in terms of, you know, culture, it was uh, my community was mostly Jewish and Italian, mm. and a little little Irish and a little German, mm. but we all got along. People say that, you know, about their childhood. Well, we all got along, but we really did all yeah. go along. It was, you know, we didn't look past, you know, who these people were. All we knew was that they were the kids down the block. So, so it was good, good childhood. So you were the kid down the block. You went off to serve your country. You came back. You've written two dozen novels right. so far. You are past president yeah. of the Mystery Writers of America. You are a member of the International Thriller Writers, who in 2015 named you Thriller Master of the Year. Right. So I loved the book, The Maze. It was a great read, a total page turner. Uh, I would recommend everyone go and buy it, read yeah. it, <laughs> put it help, help Nelson debut at number right. one again. And just keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much for joining me on Cut to the Chase, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you, Laura.